Good morning. We have two passages this morning. The first is in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel, and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, and like the warriors dividing the plunder. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod, just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms bloodstained by war will all be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. The second passage is in Matthew chapter 4. Verses 12 through 17. When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He went first to Nazareth and then left there and moved to Capernaum, beside the Sea of Galilee in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This fulfilled what God said through the prophet Isaiah. In the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, beside the sea, beyond the Jordan River in Galilee, where so many Gentiles live, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who lived in the land where death casts its shadow, a light has shined. From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Well, at this time in history, there was only one great power, the empire. And many religious groups had risen up to try to throw off their rule, but the emperor and his armies had crushed all opposition. It was a time to live that was colored by oppression. And to a certain group of people there was a promise that into this world a child would be born who had been prophesied about. For hundreds of years, people had looked forward to the coming of a child. And this child would defeat the powers of evil, would rescue his people. He would bring balance to the force because Luke Skywalker <laughs> was the child of promise. Or scratch that. Harry Potter was the child of promise. If you look at almost all of our big epic stories, they have this in common. 
A child is going to be born who is going to change everything, right? A a new king is going to come. A new order is going to be established. The overthrow of the empire is imminent, but we're waiting on one child to be born. This story is so ingrained in our souls. We love to tell this story, not just the biblical version of this story, but so many other versions of this story. This is in the heart of what it means to have hope, to expect, is we expect Christ. And we find that expectation in many other things. But God has wired us in such a way, it says in Ecclesiastes, He has put eternity into our hearts so that we too, even before we know what we're groaning for, groan for the birth of a Savior. We groan for unjust rulers to be overthrown and systems of oppression to be undone. We long for perfect justice and love and the kingdom of peace that's coming with Christ. And this is what we celebrate during Advent. This is what the kingdom of God means. And this year, for the next four Sundays, we're going to be looking at the biblical story of expectation for the king. We're going to say, what were the people actually expecting, and what kind of king did they actually get? This is a series called A Kingdom and a King, because it was an unexpected kingdom, and it was an unexpected king. It's familiar to us because we've celebrated the birth of Christ so many times. We know the end of the story. But to the people who were waiting, to the people of Isaiah's day, they were just trying to feel for what God might do that could remedy the situation they were in. See, God's kingdom and his king had been talked about since the very beginning of time, since Genesis chapter 3. One will be born who will be of the woman's seed, but he will triumph over the serpent. And all throughout history, people are expecting this king to come. It's like a great story that's waiting for an ending. Or by the time you get to the first century, it's like an award-winning show that has been dormant for many, many years that now has announced a final culminating season. See, the people of Israel had waited 400 years for this light to begin to shine. From the end of the book of Malachi to the beginning of the book of Matthew or Mark, There had been 400 years of silence, and all of a sudden, hope breaks in. Of all the gospel writers, Matthew is probably the most sensitive to this because he's writing to people who would have known the Old Testament. He's writing to people where after he says things, like in our passage today, he says, this was to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah. That's 700 years before this, there was a prophecy about exactly what's happening today. And all through his gospel, he's pointing back and saying, do you remember when this was foretold? Do you remember when they talked about this? This is happening now. And so what we're going to do for the next four weeks is we're going to follow Matthew's lead through the story of Advent, through the story of Christmas, and we're going to look at what happened then, and then we're going to look back to what Matthew says, and this was to fulfill this prophecy. So that on Christmas morning, we'll talk about the Magi coming to the manger and worshiping the new king of the universe. So what did Jesus come preaching? Well, for those of us that are probably a little more accustomed with Paul's letters, we say, well, he came preaching the forgiveness of sins and justification by faith 
and grace. We call that the gospel. And that's true, but Matthew and the gospel writers put it in a little bit different context. And so we're starting this morning in chapter 4, not the birth story of Jesus, but the birth story of the kingdom. If you look at chapter 4, verse 17, it says, from that time on, this is Jesus' first public foray into ministry. He says, from that time forward, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom of forgiveness is coming. The kingdom of peace is coming. And what I want to focus on this morning is the kingdom of hope. The kingdom of hope. So there's four things we learn in this text about hope. And the first one is hope starts small. Hope starts small. In fact, at the beginning of this passage in chapter 4, the most significant thing that we need to notice this morning is actually a very trivial little detail. Jesus moves to Galilee. Jesus moves to Galilee. It's such an everyday thing to say. He was living somewhere else, and he packed up his stuff, and he moved to Galilee. Now, why did he move to Galilee. There's something just so real life about this. Galilee was a medium-sized town. It was a fishing area. It was a region that had medium-sized towns like Capernaum in it. It was fishing was one of their major industries. And uh, Jesus decides as a real person in history to go to the real people of Galilee and give them real hope. Now, Matthew wants to put some pieces together for us. He says, "This, this is why he moved to Galilee. Isaiah said hundreds of years before this, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, these are two tribes of Israel, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. This Galilee area had been a land of promise for centuries. And Jesus, knowing the mission that he had been given, finally moves over to be the light for Galilee. Now, in Isaiah's time, in Isaiah chapter 9, he's talking about something a little bit different than what they're experiencing in the first century. In this time period, in the 8th century B.C., Israel and Judah are split, and Judah is under the leadership of King Ahaz. This is in 2 Kings chapter 16. And the people of, of Israel were being attacked, and the people of Judah decided to put their trust in the king of Assyria. So when bad times came to Judah, they decided, we're going to look to the strongest person we know. We're going to look to the most powerful person in the world at that time, and his name was Tiglath-Pileser III. That'd be a tough name to get through middle school with. But the thing that surprises me is they liked it so much they did it three times. There's three Tiglath-Pilesers. And his namesake, just to give you a little sense of what these guys were like, this is, a, this is an inscription of not Tiglath-Pileser III, but his great-great-grandfather. Tiglath-Pileser, the legitimate king, king of the world, king of Assyria, king of all the four rims of the earth, the courageous hero who lives guided by the trust-inspiring oracles given to him by Asher and Ninurta, the great gods and his lords, and who thus overthrew all his enemies. I mean, if you think we got narcissism problems today, (laughs) these guys are on another level. This was put up in public while he was still alive so that people could know his rap sheet. And so the king of, of Judah at the time, Ahaz, was like, 
He's our only person to turn to. He is the most powerful person in the world. But Isaiah, and this is what the prophets always did in history, Isaiah rebukes Ahaz and tells him, actually, your perspective is limited to a human perspective. God actually has another plan for Israel. See, all through the books of First and Second Kings, the kings go and do things that make sense in a worldly perspective, and then the prophets come along and say, but God said this. In fact, you could summarize almost the whole period of the Old Testament covered in First and Second Kings by, thus says the king, and thus says the Lord. Thus says the king, we've got to find the strongest alternative we can. We have to side with the king of Assyria. See, what happened was he takes a visit to go and see the capital of Assyria, and he sees that they have these huge temples with golden altars, and he comes back to Jerusalem, and he goes into the temple of God, of Yahweh, and he says, we've got to make this place look exactly like the one in Assyria. So he redecorates the place, he takes the altar out, he brings a new altar in, he has turned his heart, his nation, his power all towards the gods of Assyria. And then Isaiah comes in and he says, God actually has something else planned, for to us a child is going to be born, and the government is going to be on his shoulders. And his name won't be called the legitimate king of the world, king of Assyria. It will be Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And his kingdom won't go with the ebbs and flows of the world with the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians. His kingdom will increase forever. His kingdom will never end. If you wait for it, you'll see it. But Ahaz, undeterred by this, goes ahead and starts paying tribute to Assyria. And in the end, this is the downfall of both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. They put their lot in with the wrong people. In fact, it was their commitment to Assyria that later gets them on the wrong side of the next great king of the world, Nebuchadnezzar, who conquers Jerusalem just 150 years later. Isaiah's word then and his word to us now is the same. Do not hope in anything but the Lord. And this is the prophecy that Matthew quotes about Jesus moving to Galilee. See, it seems so insignificant that Jesus would go to Galilee, but in the context of this passage, this passage that we read every Christmas, it's the first part of it that Matthew wants you to focus on. Not just, for unto us a child is born, A light is shining for people who have dwelled in darkness. This really is the source of our hope. People who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. See, one of the things we learn, hope starts small because hope and the magnitude of our hope is not what's most important. The object of our hope is what's most important. Even a little bit of hope with a great object of our hope is a triumphant hope for us. So when we think about what our hope is, we don't think about, oh, I'm, I'm hoping as well as I've ever hoped. We think the object of my hope is the greatest object I could ever tie myself to. In a great sermon by Charles Spurgeon, this called Encouragement for the Depressed, he talks about the magnitude of our hope. And he says, There is no villain that hates the souls of men 
and causes more sorrow to the people of God than Mr. Live by Feeling, which if you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, you remember that Mr. Live by Feeling is one of the characters, and Spurgeon had read that book hundreds of times. He that lives by feelings will be happy today and unhappy tomorrow. And if our salvation depended upon feelings, we would be lost one day and saved the next. But we live by faith. And if faith be weak, bless God that weak faith is still faith. And that weak faith is true faith. If you believe in Christ Jesus, though your faith be as the grain of a mustard seed, it can still save you. And it will, by and by, grow into something much stronger. For a diamond is a diamond. The smallest scrap of it is the same nature as the crown jewels of England. And he that has but little faith has faith for all that. And it is not great faith that is essential to salvation, but faith that links the soul to Christ. And the soul is therefore saved. See, the people in Galilee had a very, very small hope, but they had a very, very great object for their hope. The people of Israel had a very, very fickle object and a very great hope. Which would you rather be? We would rather even have a mustard seed of hope in our great Savior than tons of hope in the best path, the best person, the best method that the world can offer. Hope starts small because hope is all about the object. Second thing we learn in this passage, Jesus moves to Galilee and a light begins to shine in the darkness. We learn that hope shines brightest in the darkest places. Hope shines brightest in the darkest places. Given that it was Thanksgiving week, I was thinking about a particularly dark time that happened a few years ago, a very hopeless moment. We were celebrating Thanksgiving, and it was icy out, and so we were worried that people, you know, were going to drive down our street and hit our cars. So we thought, let's just go move all the cars. So I run out to move the car, get in. Car is all iced over, but I don't take time to defrost it, because that's just kind of how I roll. And I put it in reverse, and I go about three feet, and I hear this giant crunch <laughs> behind the car. I get out, It's my future father-in-law's Mercedes Benz. (laughs) He was really worried about people driving down the street hitting his car. He didn't know that the problem was inside the house. (laughs) Hood ornament is on the ground. The little plastic thing on the front that tells where you got it broken on the ground. And I stand there thinking, this is really a hopeless situation. We're not married yet. But I did find one source of hope. He had already given me his word that I could marry Laura. (laughs) And that was really the guiding thing. I was like, he's already said, yes, it's inevitable, it's going to happen, nothing can change that. In fact, it was really great because we were able to put the hood ornament back on. I don't think we ever told him that that had happened. (laughs) So (laughs) it turned into a situation full of hope. But the the thing about hope that you've got to know is hope is a future expectation that defines your present situation, right? Hope is a forward-looking, future-anchored trust and belief that begins to define everything about your life then. I knew that in the future, I already had it guaranteed, locked down, I was going to marry his daughter. And that gave me a level of confidence in that situation I wouldn't have had otherwise. 
See, we think about future as, or hope as all future. Like, hope is something that we long for. And if you look at the New Testament, that is how hope is mostly used. On this we have set our hope that he will rescue us. Or we put our hope in the resurrection that someday, no matter what happens, God will be faithful and we will rise with Christ. That's hope. But the thing about hope is hope never stays in the future. If it, if it stays in the future, it's really not hope. It's just a wish at that point. Hope is something that's going to happen in the future that is so sure and it is so based in what God has said that it begins to change the way you live now. Amen. Your situation now is defined by the fact that you know how this ends. Now, in this passage, Galilee is the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, which were the first areas to fall to the Assyrians. Of all the tribes of Israel and of Judah, these were the first ones to become Assyrian provinces. They were not great places uh, at the time. In fact, they were so evil, most Jews thought they were so evil in the first century, that during the period about 150 years before Christ, they, all the Jews were mandated to move out of there to Judea in the south. This is why when you see Jesus going through the land of Samaria, you usually go around Samaria because these people are so pagan. That's the land that we're talking about. Right up at the top of that area, Jesus decides to move. And one of the commentators points out, if you read the Gospel of Matthew, one of the things that's interesting is this dark, pagan, non-Jewish observant area ends up being the place where the most people turn to Christ. See, it's the area around Jerusalem that you would think would be ready for the Savior. They're the ones that knew the law. They're the ones that did all the observances. They're the one that had all the religious traditions. They're the ones that went to the temple all the time. But if you read it, it's those people who reject Jesus, and it's the people who are sitting in darkness who see the light when it begins to shine. And I found this to be true in our world as well. Sometimes it's the darkest moments, it's the people who have walked in darkness the longest who are the most sensitive to the dawning of hope. It's like on a bright day, a single candle doesn't really pop out to you, but if you're in a dark room and somebody strikes a match, even that little flame is something you can't take your eyes off of. Many of you remember or are associated with the ministry Hope is Alive. We've had them here before. I've got a really good friend who went through their program. They're a sober living ministry. And if you want to hear stories of hope, they are just filled with hope. I mean, it's their name, Hope is Alive. But one of the things I love is that their founder, Lance Lang, started to use the phrase hope dealers. Right? You've got all these people who have been addicted to drugs and alcohol, and they used to be dealers of a different kind. And now they're hope dealers. And now when you look at their stories, you can't help but say, how? Somebody that was walking in that much darkness, how did they ever have hope? And it's like, hope shines brightest in the darkness. Hope shines brightest for people that are at their worst moment, at the bottom, feeling like there is no rescue, no recourse, no nothing for them. And all of a sudden, a little glimmer of hope begins to shine. And for the people in Galilee, this was the case. One person moved there. One single little match was struck, and the entire place was filled with light. Now, Jesus began to preach and teach when he got to Galilee, saying, repent, for the kingdom is at hand. He's promising something that we have experienced a little bit, but that isn't going to be here fully until the end of time. Because the most common thing, if you say, we're living in the kingdom of heaven, 
And you look around and you're like, this is it? This is the kingdom of heaven? It's an already and not yet kind of kingdom. It's a mustard seed growing kind of kingdom. It's a treasure found in a field that you go and sell everything you have to get this little piece of treasure hidden in the ground kind of kingdom. See, hope never disappoints. Hope never disappoints. There's only one object of your faith that will never let you down. And Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 5. And those of you that have been here much, I think this passage is the most underrated passage in the New Testament. Paul says this, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And listen to, the how, he, listen to how he uses the word hope. Through him we also have obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope will never put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us. See, the Christian life is also an already and not yet kind of life. It's a life where you have been given the Spirit. You have been blessed in Christ with everything in the heavenly places. You have been, you've had the love of God poured into your hearts because right after this is that famous passage that says, you know, a good person wouldn't really die for someone they didn't know. I mean, a righteous person maybe, but God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were his enemies, we were still sinners. Christ died for us. You have that kind of love guaranteed as much as you'll ever have of it. But it's a, it's a not yet kind of life too because we're not yet where we will be someday. We will be in a place someday where there's no crying, no tears, no hurts, no injustices, but we're not in that place yet. And that's why we hope. We hope because God is preparing us now for people who are going to be ready for that kind of hope then, have you ever wondered why God does all this darkness at all? Why, if God is a God of light, why do we have a world so full of darkness? You know, why didn't God just, the moment you became a Christian, just zap you up to heaven? You never had to deal with any of this stuff because you wouldn't be ready. You wouldn't, you wouldn't fit in there. What he's doing now that we see all over is he wants to make you a worshiper. He wants to turn you into somebody who hopes in him. See, we come to Christ with all kinds of other hopes, and then we turn our hope to him, and the rest of our life is getting rid of our old hopes and strengthening our hope in Christ, the one hope that will never disappoint us. See, Paul talks about this again in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where he says, you know, I don't want you guys to be uninformed. We encountered something so terrible in Asia. This is in chapter 1, verse, uh, verse 8. We don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received a sentence of death. Now, this is interesting coming from Paul. Because later in this letter, in chapter 11, he's going to give us a list of the things that he suffered. He was beaten with rods he got the cat of nine tails that Jesus got before he went to the cross. He did that five times. He was beaten. He was shipwrecked. He was left for dead. And now all of a sudden at the beginning of this letter, he says, man, we had something really terrible happen. You're like, what could that have been? 
I mean, if you're used to this, he's been shipwrecked three times, left for dead in the sea, without food, all of this. And he said, that, that, all that stuff was pretty bad. We experienced something really bad. It was something that made us despair of our lives. We, just, we wished we were dead. In fact, we thought that we had received a death sentence. And you have to pause in this passage and say, have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like there have been some bad things, but this really is bad? This is the one that makes us kind of think, is this whole thing a sham? Have I been taken? Have I put my trust in something that actually does disappoint? Because if you read this passage and you just breeze right through it, you you don't understand what he's about to say next. We had despaired of every hope we had. But, he says, that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That was to make us rely on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. This is hope. When we're sick, we ask God for healing. And when we're suffering, we ask God for relief. And what Paul tells us here is, and when we have no idea what to ask for. When death seems like the only option, we hope in the one who raises the dead. See, hope never disappoints if you give it long enough. This is where our expectation of the future is so different than the people we work with and talk with and live around every day. Our hope is not anchored on everything turning out well in this lifetime. It's not. Our hope is not guaranteed that we're going to have a wonderful, happy life that turns out the way we want it to. We are are promised that eternity is going to turn out exactly the way God says it will. And so our hope colors the way that we live now. We live towards eternity. Now, we live for now in a lot of ways. We're we're guaranteed joy that surpasses understanding. We're guaranteed fruits of the Spirit. We're guaranteed fellowship. But if all else fails, Paul says, this was to teach us the final lesson, which is we have a God, if all else fails, who raises the dead. If you give it long enough, hope never disappoints. And it's funny to watch Paul have to live this hope because we know when his letters were written, basically, and so we can follow his career. Things don't get better for Paul after this. They get worse. And he says, our hope is in the one who raises the dead. And he says, in hindsight, you can look back and you can say, God had a purpose for this. I couldn't see it then, but I I can see it now. God was working and shaping. He had a goal in mind when he allowed me to walk through that season. And his goal was to make me not rely on myself, but rely on him. And in the end of Paul's life, he really was going to need it because he gets to the place where he's on trial in Rome. All of his friends have left him. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, at my first trial, everyone abandoned me. Everybody abandoned me. Even his close Christian friends were gone. He said, but the Lord stood by and strengthened me. In fact, he says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. See, the thing he went through in Asia prepared him for what he was going to go through in Rome. And what he went through in Rome was an ironclad hope for him because he knew the Lord's purpose. One of the reasons we suffer now 
is so that when we trust Christ in the suffering, we're prepared to hope even stronger when we face something else. See, every Asian suffering that Paul had, and even if it leads to a Roman suffering, is preparing us to see our hope face to face. He will bring us safely into his heavenly kingdom, no matter what happens between now and then. Through your trials now, he's giving you hope that you'll need later. And through the hope that he gives you later, he's giving you a glimpse of what you'll see when you're with him forever. The last thing we learn is hope is temporary. Hope is temporary. Hope exists in the meantime. It's forward-looking, has a goal in mind, and it influences the way we live now. But when we do rise from the dead, we won't need hope anymore. Have you ever thought about this? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Why? Because when the end of all things comes and Christ returns and we are with him forever, you won't need faith anymore because your faith will be sight. And you won't need hope anymore because the anchor of your hope will have done what you were hoping for all along. The only thing that will be left at that point is love. The relationship we long for, the king who's come to save us, the kingdom of peace and justice and righteousness forever. Something that nobody will ever be able to take away from us. But for now, we hope. We hope. This is the power of the kingdom of God. Jesus moved to Galilee to give people hope. There's a better kingdom coming. So as I wrap up this morning and Mars and Josh come back to lead us in worship, the, the thing we need to take away from this is so easy. Where is your hope? Are you living in a way that reflects this kind of hope? Or are you hedging your hope with all kinds of other hopes? Because Jesus, when he comes into Galilee, he has a very simple message. You have one big problem, your sins. And you have one ironclad solution, repent, believe in me, and become a member of the kingdom of hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son, that he came as a real person, fully God, to real people like us, to a real region that was unknown, not one of the popular places in the ancient world, but he came to small villages and preached, the kingdom is here. A new king is here, and you can be part of his kingdom. Father, I pray that you would inspire our hearts with hope this morning, that we, we think about hope when we think about difficult times, and Lord, I know there's people in this room this morning that are in very difficult times, and I pray that in those moments, Lord, your hope would shine the brightest. Father, I pray for people in this room that aren't in difficult times that you would be using this time to anchor their hope in your Son. Lord, help us not to put our trust in things like kings of Assyria or in the promise of living by our feelings, the promise of our own gifts and talents. Father, make us people who hope only in you because we know we will never be disappointed in that. Father, we thank you this morning for your Son, we thank you for his birth. We thank you for this season to celebrate. Turn our hearts over these next few weeks to praise you, to hope in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.